Hello, I'm Michael Heyman, and you're listening to Changemakers, the podcast from Seven Hills where we hear from inspirational people with a passion to make a difference. My guest today is Baroness Ruby McGregor-Smith, the business leader, life peer, and the new president of the British Chambers of Commerce. In 2007, she became the first Asian female chief executive of a FTSE 250 company, all part of a career that has earned Ruby a reputation as a fearless leader and a trailblazer in the debate about fairness, equality, and the future of the workplace. Ruby, welcome to Changemakers. Pleasure to have you on the show. Um, I'd like to start, if I may, with one of your lockdown inspirations, which obviously accompanies this show, but you said, never take yourself too seriously and just keep going. Whatever obstacles are put in your way, keep learning. Tell us a little bit more. I think, well, first of all, thank you, Michael. It's lovely to be on the show. I think I, I think my big point about never taking yourself too seriously is I'm a mum of two. So even if I wanted to take myself too seriously, there are two people that probably never would take me too seriously. Um, And I also think that you've got to keep going in your career. I look back and many people often ask me about setbacks, how they keep progressing in their career. And I always say the same thing, keep on going. However it feels, whatever you're doing, carry on, never give up. And the reason for that is that you've got to keep on learning and you've got to keep on developing. And you also, as you become more senior in your career, you realize that you you may well want to do other things one day. And so you want to maybe keep changing your career. But I think it's really important to continue with lifelong learning, continue to develop yourself. But more than anything, as you do get more senior, a lot of people start to treat you more seriously. And I just think that's all very interesting. But you're not actually a different person to the person you were before. Because I, I was going to say, I mean, I mean, you've you've got a career that's that's a blue chip career. I mean, you, you're you're you you've got a role in public life. I mean, when people say hear that, never take yourself too seriously. They might say, oh come on, she can't mean that. Surely, I mean, look look how serious her her whole life is. I mean, I'm oh. presuming at home you might be a very different person with your kids. I think it's because I I I get quite embarrassed by about some of that success and. Um, I've never taken the success too seriously either. I've never felt it was a particularly extraordinary set of achievements. I keep thinking I'm still learning and so, and I'm still developing. And because of that, I, I think it, you know, I never, I've never really been happy with, with what I've achieved. I think I'll always be one of those people that's constantly trying to continue to achieve more. Mm. I mean, it's interesting that a lot of people I've interviewed um, that, you know, success is a very subjective personal um, issue, isn't it? In terms of have I made it? Have I got there? Um, is there any? Is there anything in it that 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 you fear anything like failure or or I mean, are there in terms of what keeps you going? Is it always looking for the next peak, or are there things that are chasing you also? I think it's more for me just to accept that you you know you're going to get it wrong from time to time, but you've got to keep remembering that obstacles, a bit of failure, is just something that goes with being successful. And that it's okay to fail at certain things. None of us can do our jobs perfectly. None of us get every decision right. And as you get more senior in your career, you have to realize it. You know, I remember when I was a more, you know, more junior employee in an organization, I'd sort of look up at at boards and at CEOs and find it quite easy to maybe make criticisms of of things they'd not necessarily got right. And then when I was in that position, I realized everyone was just going to have a go at me, uh, whatever I did, which was, came as a bit of a shock. And I, I think you you just have to accept you're only human. You're not going to get it all right. 
but it's really important to you know to, to take to put it all in context and not to treat yourself too seriously as you go through that would would that be the advice you give to your younger self if you could advise yourself oh absolutely i think we all take things far too much seriously when we're all youngsters we never really know what we're going to want i think i was a little bit too serious um and maybe should have been a bit lighter and a little bit less critical of myself as well mm. but i mean i mean a, a, a heavyweight piece of reading i mean the power of now uh, eckhart tolle in terms of um mindfulness and how to silence our thoughts and create the liberated life um tell us have you achieved that Oh, gosh, no. I, it's one of my favorite books because I keep trying to understand how I can achieve it. But I think it's the kind of book I felt, feel everyone should read because what it did help me realize was that, for, you know, much of the criticism I have of myself is in my head. And I need to sometimes silence those thoughts and just focus on the things I have done and live for the moment. Um, I've never been one that's been particularly great at living for the moment. I'm always you know, worried about what I haven't achieved, worried about what more I could achieve. And so living in today, I think is a really important thing to learn. Um, and I'll let you know when I get there, but I'm not there yet. <laughs> but there's a lot of tips in that. I mean, if you were to, if you were to give a tip to a listener in terms of actually, how do they confront the, you know, the voice on the shoulder, the tap, tap, tap of don't live in the now, think about what's coming next. I think you need to have really good support around you, really good. You know, what's helped me is is my kind of immediate family, great friends, great support. You know, certainly when I was running Mighty, it was a brilliant team to work with every day. You need great support around you, whatever you're doing. Um, and you need good emotional support as well. I'm only really successful because of all the support I've had from so many people in my life. Mm. I mean, I mean, I've, lo- I've loved reading about your story, Ruby. I mean, you know, born in India, moved to the UK, age two. I mean, in terms of when you started to get a sense of of that, I mean, actually, pick up the story for us in terms of when did you start to think about what you might do and actually the experience um, that that sort of, I guess, introduces the Ruby that we we know today. I think it was it was really difficult. I mean, I came here as, as you've rightly said when I was two from India. My mum came here with me then. My dad had come when I was one to sort of start a new life, really, for the three of us. And we had a really tough time. It was, you know, we we, we lived in, in a small bedsit, first of all, in central London. Then mum and dad saved up enough money to buy a house near White City. Then we moved to Stanmore in North London. And, you know, they you know, I really did experience some really high levels of poverty with them. And I think it was a really tough beginning for them, um, particularly coming to a new country. I mean, Britain in the 1960s wasn't always that welcoming to people that looked a little bit different. Um, And I realized quite early on that race and actually being a girl was going to make it tougher for me. My family, uh, a Muslim family, and Therefore, it's also tougher for women in, you know, within that culture as well. And so growing up here was quite difficult. I found the cultural challenges quite difficult. But I think that was what may have given me some of my resilience because I had to deal with all of that at a very young age. And so whether it was the challenges around race, around being a female, what I did work out was if I want to be successful, my, my parents always, you know, said to me, look, you've got to focus on your education because that will open doors for you, Ruby. What won't open doors for you is being a female and being Asian. 
which at that time was a hard thing to say, and it's a hard thing to say to anybody. But it was mm. it was definitely very true. And so I decided to, after I went to university, I did economics to carry on and do what my dad had done, which was chartered accountancy, which I found really tough, but did. Um, and then I joined Serco, and that was where I guess I began to think quite seriously about what I could achieve in my career. Mm. I mean, you wrote the McGregor Smith review in in mm. twenty seventeen, where you looked at the opportunity for black and ethnic minority talent. Um, you spoke of a twenty four billion pound boost to the UK economy that wasn't being realised. If you fast forward that, um, I guess three years later, in terms of how things have changed in the in the I guess the year of Black Lives Matter, and if if you if you look at the UK today versus 2017 is is it getting better do you think i think that's it's it's tough it's really difficult it was really hard for me to write a review on race i've done a lot of work on women but talking about race is a very very personal thing and it meant i was going to relive some of my experiences of growing up in the uk not all of which were brilliant and and when i was doing my review i listened to a lot of individuals we ran a lot of round tables we took a lot of evidence around all the things that needed to really change. And things have changed since I was a kid, but that was quite a long time ago. Um, and in the last three years, what I think we've seen is I and others that have written reviews um, really need some of these findings that we've talked about to be implemented because there's not a lot of point in doing reviews if they're not going to be implemented. And my big ones uh, for the workplace were very much around um, thinking around the ethnicity pay gap, having mentors, having sponsors in business for individuals of colour. Um, and, and if you take a look at business in the community, they've now got the Race at Work chart, which has been set up on a voluntary basis. But one of the big things I said three years ago was, look, if we can't get this done very quickly on a voluntary basis, I'd really welcome the government to support me on the ethnicity pay gap. And I'm still hopeful that will come in at some stage. It's not in yet. But I think what that will do is start to help us all measure and understand where we stand on ethnicity and pay and what we then mm. need to move to. I mean, and when you think about leaders um, running businesses that are beginning to acknowledge this in a very different way than previous years, if you've got a message to them right now in terms of what do they do next with good intention in terms of how they turn that into good action? I think what's been really interesting during this debate is many organisations have come out and said that black lives do matter and made some really big public statements. But I can only say I then look at their boards and senior management teams, none of whom are black, and think to myself, well, if they really cared and if it really mattered, they would have done more about progression in the workplace for their BAME colleagues. And so what any leader should be doing today, if they are committed to thinking around this movement more seriously and wanting the most diverse talent in the workplace, is they'll look at some of the interventions I and many others have suggested, which go from, well then, publish your ethnicity pay gap, put some targets in, make them aspirational, doesn't mean to say that you're gonna hit them, but at least it shows you're gonna really care, put in sponsoring. All of us did well in our careers through being sponsored and supported by, by the people we worked for. Really think around 
all the matters that really impact different groups in your workplace because one of the big things I found is that, you know, for many BAME colleagues I know, they don't feel they fit in. Make make your mm. BAME colleagues fit in. Women have had this debate for many years about where do they fit. Um, BAME teams will have the same, in the same way individual disabilities have the same. So let's take you back to 2007 because you became the first female Asian CEO of a FTSE 250 company in, in Mighty. Did you feel like you fitted in then yourself? Gosh, no, that was horrendous. I, I hadn't realised I was the first until I read about it in the press. It was um, it was really awful, actually. I remember going home on the tube and seeing my picture in the papers feeling quite horrified. Because I, I, I think I'd always wanted to fit in, and suddenly I realised I didn't fit into anything. Um, it was actually making it even worse. For a girl that's tried to crave in to fit in all her life, suddenly you realise you stand out in a way you weren't quite expecting to. And look, it was an mm. incredible moment for me, but it was it was also one where I realized that um, I was going to have to start to talk a bit more about these issues, and I was quite unnerved by that, really. Because suddenly mm. that was a change, and once I realized that I was the first, I was actually quite horrified. I thought, well, if I can do it, so many others can do it. Why haven't they done it? So you know, it strikes me that there is a kind of – expectation these days that that to use the prime minister's phrase ceos arrive oven ready um that you know you you you, you've gone from cfo to ceo and you should have all the requisite skills how did you find it oh i thought it was awful i mean i i remember when uh, when i got the role um i did a an interview with the sunday times the piece where you talk about your life and the journalist was talking to me on the phone and started asking me questions about my life. Where did I grow up? You know, what was my family background? How many children did I have? And I just kept saying, I don't want to tell you anything. And in the end, he said to me, look, you need to talk to me about something about you. I've got nothing to write. And, uh, you know, and in the end, I got a bit more used to it. But what I, it takes time. No one's ready to do those really big roles. They get them. They learn. You keep learning. I learned a lot over a decade as being a CEO, and I wish I'd, you know, been able to work with a with a CEO at the time that could have said to me, "Look, these are the things that you may, you know, you may want to reflect upon, and you are going to need more support mm. on." I went out and got quite a lot of support on the areas I was more concerned about, um, but that's the first interview kind of set up my. Um, my dread of public speaking to begin with, but I had to overcome that. You know, suddenly you're having to talk to a lot more people. I couldn't have done this in 2007, Michael. This interview. I, I always wonder. <laughs> this, this interview would never have happened. Well, luckily we're doing it in 2020. I always <laughs> wonder, you know, when with a lot of people. I mean, you know, you become you become CEO. It's the pinnacle. It's what you drive for. It's some. Um, but in terms of what makes you happy, does that sort of role involve a lot of personal happiness and joy and satisfaction i mean is are those words you would associate with the tenure of 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 a of kind of a big ceo role do you think i don't know if if joy and satisfaction are really up there lots of incredibly hard work a brilliant time with brilliant teams and at times a huge amount of fun um but you know i would say they're incredible roles to do but don't do them forever because you get really really tired you know have a have a time span on it. Think about what may well come next. Because you can't do them forever because you do just run out of energy. And you do run out mm. every 
CEO starts to run out of, of being that young, fresh CEO as they become more established. And that's why people don't do those roles forever. Very rarely do you see people do them forever. I think it's really important to have a, a, a sensible thought process over what comes next so that you can understand it's never going to be forever, but that you can do some real good while you have the role. And did you do you see did you see signals in yourself? I mean, are, are there signs that people should think about in terms of when it's time for the next adventure? I mean, in terms of what what are the things to watch out for that others others you might advise on this? I think it's really important to to try and understand what you can do with the business and set yourself some goals with that business. And when they're done, make sure you go. And that may sound quite blunt, but actually. You know, you're not going to be there forever. You're going to get older. You're going to, you're going to be, you're not going to find it as easy. Markets change as well. So, you know, I'm a very big, ambitious growth CEO is what I was. And I was suddenly working, you know, after 10 years in a market that wasn't going to grow. And so mm-hmm. my may not well be suited for the next decade of, for the business. So I think it's also good to know about what your own skills are and what your teams are. And also to understand what you can jointly do, but then do your piece and then leave it to, to the next team. It's funny, I always remember um, reading that the, that the sign of a really good house guest was knowing when to go. And I think that that, that, that sort of like that, that moment, that timing is such an important part in people's careers. I think it's important to make sure that you can, you, you do know roughly how long you think you can do it for. And I also, for me, I I think being a mum of two meant that, you know, I was always concerned about making sure I had the right kind of work-life balance because of my family. And that was certainly a major factor for me in wanting to do different things because I felt I'd given up a huge amount already um, while they were growing up. But I mean, I sort of think about your time at Mighty because obviously I, I met you during the Startup Britain campaign about ten years ago, and and you you were relatively new in post. But I've always thought, you know, interestingly with what you've just said there is that there's there's two sides to you. There's this, there's the side that fits in. There's the peer. There's the there's a successful CEO, and then there's a side which is the kind of the troublemaker, the person who wants to stand out, the person that wants to make a difference. Is that a fair characterization? Do you think? And I mean, I mean how do you respond to that? I think I want to see positive change around things that I think haven't been tackled. And I think one of, one of the things I very much felt as a female CEO was I think I just got a bit sick and tired of never meeting very many and thinking, where are, where are all the people I can bounce off ideas that are like me? And there aren't any, mm. very few. And I, I don't think that's necessarily right. I just want to see a fairer workplace. And so that did ignite a bit of a passion in me around fairness in the workplace for every individual. You know, I was in a, I had two great sponsors in my career who really supported me. Not everyone gets that. If So for those that really need it, you know, to propel them forward, they need great sponsorship. Um, and it's something I've been very keen on doing. I don't know if I agree with the word troublemaker. Again, I think that comes from just being a bit different. I was going to say, some of, you, some of your opponents might agree with it. Oh, yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, I mean, it, it does strike me, though, that actually that you are motivated by causes, standing up for justice. You've got a new role where you're standing up for business. I mean, 
where are you most happy? You know, because obviously you've been a you've been a CEO of of, of a publicly listed company. Um, you, you've got a role in in public life. In terms of if we were to sort of try and get to the sweet spot of the part of your life that gives you the most satisfaction, where where would you centre it? I think it's always been around what I've always been, which is I love positive change. And I want to see positive change. And I want to see business be a brilliant force for good in the UK. I want to see it improving what it can do every day. I want us to come out of COVID and have the most incredible economic recovery, a green-led recovery, a jobs-led recovery, to do it better than we did after 2008. Um, And to really learn the lessons of the last crisis and say this time around we're going to we're going to make sure it's a more equal and a more fair recovery. Um, and I think I, I've always just been driven by the excitement of business, actually, the excitement of growth, the excitement of creating better jobs and better futures for people. And mm. when I first met you, Michael, you know, my passion for entrepreneurs and the startup model and the excitement and innovation new businesses can can bring, I think is where where my heart really is. It's the the excitement of working with individuals who want to create brilliant change in the UK. Um, that's really what I'm about. I mean, let, let's move on to the Chambers of Commerce because you've, you've just become president, appointed in March of this year. I mean, I mean, talk about out of the frying pan and, in, and into the fire, just in time for lockdown. What, what's been the experience? I think it was um, uh, the most intense induction I could probably have ever had. But I think it's been, the teams around the country are fantastic. As you'll know, we've got 53 chambers. Between them, they employ over 6 million people. And it's just been incredible just listening to the experiences up and down the UK of the challenges, but also the successes as we start to come out of this. And so certainly since I became president, we have very much focused on, you know, looking at what government policies and interventions we need to support business around the country. And we really want to help make sure that the levelling up agenda, the build back better agenda is really delivered. And and I think they it's, it's a brilliant network. It's... Um, the most, it's an entrepreneurial network with some extraordinary people in it. Um, it's a real honour to do it. Have you found the mood of business? I mean, presumably you've been able to take a good sort of pulse check of members around the country. I mean, in terms of facing the, I guess, the, the economic and business consequences of, of COVID, what, how have you found um, people bearing up? I think it's been really tough difficult around the UK for different industries and some industries are still not opened up as you know but I think certainly not on many of the calls I've done what I've very much heard is look we can get a recovery we can bounce back but we may well need some more support uh two weekly tracker that we've been recently doing shows where business sentiment on the ground lies and that can still be quite mixed but there are real shoots of potential recovery out there but it will need a little bit more support from the government, particularly as we come out of this. So I, I feel that the, you know, for, for the businesses that haven't been able to open up, this is still very tough territory. For many individuals with small businesses, this is not easy. But equally so, we can get this right for many of them. But equally, you know, what, what I do worry about is making sure we can do it quickly enough, because we're still not through this, and our big big asks of the government, particularly 
have been around making sure we've got the right test and trace regime because we know this is here to stay for a while, so we're having to adapt to it. And as many British businesses have adapted to COVID, which is fantastic, they've done it so quickly, what we need to make sure is we've got long-term measures in place to deal with it. Mm. But but we were talking just before we started the interview that you mm. confront the idea that we should get used to COVID as a new normal, that we need to fight to take back the lives that I guess we've had to put on put on hold. Tell, tell us more. I think that I, I don't want there to be a new COVID normal. I want us to be able to be business which doesn't talk about health measures every day. In order to not do that, we have to make sure we've got the right test and trace regime in for this illness. We have many other, across the world, there are other infectious diseases where people the people do not worry as much about. And clearly the whole world is very focused and very concerned on having the right resolutions to COVID-19. But if we're going to accept it for what it is, then we need to stop being scared of it. And we need to absolutely make sure we can isolate cases where we know they're coming. We've got the right data. We've got the right infrastructure to manage it. And then I think Britain can get back more to normal and business can bounce back. But we still all have got this shadow over us. You know, at the moment, many people are still working at home. It's still difficult to go back to the office. It's still difficult to use public transport. All these blockers we've got to take out. And we've got to get everyone used Mm. to saying, look, while it's here, we're going to operate a bit differently. But there will be life post this and it's going to be brilliant. But let's keep adjusting during this period. But I suppose you use the phrase there, what we're scared of. I mean, it, it strikes me having, you know, read um, your story and also some of the people that inspired you, that courage matters in leadership. Mm. You you mentioned that um, the CEO at Serco at the time, Richard White, inspired you to do more with your career and believed in in your capabilities to, to, back, to back you for that future. If you were to think about courageous leadership then in terms of this kind of unparalleled um, public health emergency that we're facing. What what do good leaders do now to show courage um, in fighting COVID, do you think? I think you need really courageous leaders at this point who are prepared to say, look, we're going to beat it. Our economies are going to recover. And not only are they going to recover, we're going to really excel when we come out of this. And we're going to make sure we've got the right infrastructure in place to control what we're dealing with. And we've got the right support for those that do get it. Um, You know, when I talked about Richard White, he was just so, you know, you want to be around leaders who are really excited about the future. And absolutely, there's risks. And there's challenges along the way, but they create a vision and a dream that you can all stand behind. And at the moment, we're still too scared and we need to stop being scared. Well, there you have it. The lessons of courageous leadership. And I'm going to have to have the courage to call time because that's all we've got time for. And a big thank you to my guest, Baroness Ruby McGregor-Smith, a champion of causes and a fighter for fairness. It's been the story of what it takes to triumph in these very tough times. And for more from those making the difference, join me on the next Changemakers. I'll see you then.